get here and want a creative job. There are hundreds of jobs that will pay you to think, solve, make, create and design. In How Did I Get Here, I speak to entrepreneurs, leaders, trendsetters and trailblazers in some of the world's most desirable jobs and ask them, how did you get here? Today, I'm speaking to Jason Ferrugia, who is a strength and conditioning coach based in California. He's also the founder of the expansive online training platform, the Renegade Strength Club, but it doesn't stop there. Jay's other hats include being an author, a stand-up and improv comedian, performance coach and consultant, a life strategist and transformation specialist, and host of a podcast with over 2 million downloads. Jay's been featured in Men's Fitness, Men's Health, Muscle and Fitness, Details, ESPN, Fast Company, CBS, and Maximum Fitness. And he has personally trained more than 700 athletes from over 90 different NCAA, NFL, NHL, and MLB organizations. He's also worked extensively with firefighters, police officers, and military personnel. He's worked with Hollywood actors and entertainers. And um, most importantly, um, as an online trainer, Jay has basically helped over 53,000 um, skinny guys and, and what the fitness industry would call the hard gainers um, in 126 different countries to build a body that they're proud of. Um, it was a bit, a bit of a privilege for me to speak to Jay. I've been reading his content for years. So um, I hope you enjoy it. Without further ado, please enjoy my interview with Jay Ferrugia. Okay. Hi, Jay. It's great to speak to you. How are you doing? I'm great, man. Thanks for having me here. Appreciate oh, it's it. a pleasure. Um, Jay, we're going to dive straight into it because you're a busy guy and I want to get as much uh, of your story as possible for people listening. So um, can you describe for me what you do for a living and try not, it always gets quite interesting answers this, try not to use your job title. I basically just help people live stronger lives, you know, and, and, get stronger mentally, physically, emotionally, be willing to take more risks and find the purpose and passion. And, you know, like I said, just live a stronger life. Okay, cool. And, and, and now what is that job title? What do you do for a living? I would answer that the same way. It's kind of, it's kind of hard where for, for 20 years, I would say I am a strength and conditioning coach or I'm a fitness professional. Whereas the last five years I've branched out in a number of different directions and it's kind of gone in, a, in more of a personal development route. And that was due to some things that I was kind of struggling with in my, in my own life. So I really focused on personal development. And so now it's, it's a little hybrid of, of fitness and personal development. It's still all just about becoming your strongest self. Okay. So um, let's rewind way back now. And can you tell me a little bit about where you grew up? And, you know, I always think this is interesting. What you spent most of it, you know, when you're growing up, you might have a part-time job and you're, you're earning very little money. What did you spend, you know, what did you spend that money on when you were kind of growing up? What was, what was valuable to you? I grew up in small town, New Jersey, just a kind of weak, insecure kid who got bullied and whatnot. I didn't have a lot of self-confidence and I was obsessed with a few different things. I was obsessed I, as a young kid. I was obsessed with superheroes and pro wrestling. Uh, the pro wrestling thing never went away. And then I was always <laughs> obsessed with hip hop music throughout my youth. So I, and, and of course training. So I would spend my money, on uh, tapes, which that, that was a thing that you used to play music on for anyone <laughs> under 30, uh, yeah. tapes and uh, supplements and food and stuff like that, gym memberships, just that kind of stuff. So yeah. NWA tapes, public enemy tapes, 
Fresh Prince, Rakim, all that kind of stuff, and then just like weight gainer shakes and stuff like that. Yeah, and and so that was that was pretty much sort of teen life for you was kind of training and then all, all the stuff around that, and then when you weren't training, music. Yeah, yep, always been obsessed with music. So what what you know what you do now for a living? When was when was the first time? Because obviously. You know, much like you, when I was a teenager, I got into training, I got into lifting weights and all the, you know, the whole world that kind of comes with it. Um, when was the first time beyond just doing it for fun or as a hobby that you kind of went, oh, you know, I'd love to do this for a job. You or maybe you saw someone else doing it. I started interning in the weight room during college because I really did enjoy it. And I, I saw the change and the difference it was making in my life. So I started interning and then. I got really sick and I had to go home and, and, and uh, spend a semester at home, basically on bed rest and taking all kinds of medication and whatnot. And during that time, I said, you know what, I should, I should get my first personal trainer certification and see if I could do this for a living because it's, it's something that I enjoy so much and maybe I can make money doing it. And it's funny because I'd gone into college as a communications major wanting to, to make films or, or host a sh uh, some kind of radio or TV show. And then that kind of fell by the wayside and that became my thing. So. It was during that time I was sick and I got my certification and then later that summer I actually started training people for the first time. Very, very cool. What, so what did that, that first training session where you were officially a personal trainer and someone was paying you, like, what did that, what did that feel like? Man, that was so long. That was 1994. Uh, it's so hard to remember that. It was, I just remember my, my, my first client was Richie Klein who he was probably in his mid to late 40s at the time. Overweight guy, about 300 pound guy. He was friends with my dad, and I was charging him maybe 20 bucks an hour at the time. And I, I would go to his house, and we would train in his little basement gym. And I was not sure of myself. I was insecure. I wasn't real authoritative, and honestly, I wasn't that great of a trainer. I had just gotten started, so I was figuring it out as I went. But uh, I, I do remember he was my first client. I can't remember, you know, the, the specifics of it, but. I do remember some of those things. Okay. What, and, and tell me how, how your career as a trainer kind of developed from there. Cause I've, you know, I've, I've been reading your stuff for a long time. So I'm, you know, I'm familiar with the developments you made in your own life and how you put that into your work. But to anyone uh, listening that isn't, you know, what, what, what did you go on to do from there? Cause you are certainly no longer, um, you know, a personal trainer charging 20, $20 an hour, you know, it's you yeah. know, more that you do now. So, can you yeah. me through what you, you know, your, your career and the decisions that you made? Yeah. So I was 19 that summer when I started training people and I wasn't that good of a trainer and I didn't really know a lot about business and I hadn't read anything about business during that time, but for whatever reason, business took off. I started getting a lot of referrals, a lot of referrals. And by the end of that summer, I was on pace to make six figures as a 19 year old during my first year of training people. So I said, man, I'm, uh, cause I was going to Arizona state. And I said, screw it. I'm not going to go back to Arizona State once I get well enough to go back to school. I'm going to uh, transfer back to Jersey to Seton Hall and continue to run and grow the business. So that was what I did. And I was going to school full time and running. You know, I was at the gym, I don't know, 30, 40 hours a week. Eventually, it got up to where I was at the gym 12, 15 hours a day. And it was, it was, I was just grinding and hustling. That was all I knew. So I, I sacrificed a lot of my, my, my late teens, early 20s. My 21st birthday, I was in bed at 9 o'clock. Like, I missed out. I caught up on it later when I turned 28 and went through a little phase of partying, but I just was, you know, working super hard from 19 to about 28, 10 years, 12 hours a day. And, uh, 
I, I, I eventually got my, my first athlete client two years later, and I really wanted to train athletes because I was obsessed with sports growing up, always been a diehard Yankees and Giants fan, a huge basketball fan, played sports but wasn't that good. And I, I wished, once I started getting into training and saw the difference it made, I was like, man, I wish I did this when I was younger because I could have been such a better athlete, but now let me help younger athletes. So my first uh, athlete client was somebody by the name of Mike Schwab who – uh, that was 1996, so 22 years later, he's still like a little brother to me. I just had dinner with him in New York a week ago, which was really cool. But Mike referred me a bunch of clients because he was getting great results. He, he broke his high school football rushing record. He referred me other guys who went on to do the same thing. And before I knew it, I would have uh, up to 70 high school athletes coming in after school each day. So it really blew up. And then uh, friends of mine in the industry said, man, you should, you're doing great stuff. You're doing stuff that's really original. I was one of the first people to have one of the underground warehouse hardcore kind of gyms that are so popular nowadays and that style of training before anyone did it. So before you could go on the internet and order sandbags and sledgehammers and tires and chains and all that stuff, we had all that stuff uh, in 96. And so things just grew and, and took off and I started getting into different websites and I uh, got into magazines and then had, had my own column and uh, wrote a book for Penguin and kind of just continued to evolve and, and grow. Bigger and faster than, than I ever could, but there, there were certainly some some hiccups and setbacks along the way, which we could discuss if, if you want at some point. Yeah, no, that would be that would be good to hear about those. Actually, I think um, it's really easy when you're you're young and you're looking at someone successful to kind of think that they just you know step up to the plate and knock it out of the park every single time. So yeah, let, let's talk about that. So what were some of the the hiccups and? Yeah, well, so the biggest challenge. I mean, this could be a whole another two hour talk. Is my lack of self-confidence and stuff like that. That's another thing. But the, the biggest thing that, that, that sticks out is when I was 31, because I had this lack of self-confidence and I had self-limiting beliefs and a lot of bad habits, and I didn't have an, an influence in my life telling me the right things to do with my money. And because I was so insecure and I wanted everyone to like me, I was making a lot more money than my friends were back then. So everything was on me. Oh, you guys want to go out in the city? Cool. It's on me. We'll get a table. It's on me. We'll buy $500 bottles. It's on me. We'll go to Vegas and get the uh, the real world suite, it's on me, whatever. Let's go to Nobu. And I would continually do that and then start falling into, in my later 20s, like I said, I started getting into partying a lot, started going out all the time and just burning through cash. So, so much so that after running a really successful business for over a decade, I had to call my mom when I was 31 with tears in my eyes and tell her I blew all my money. I'm completely broke. I have nothing left. I could barely pay the bills. I could barely feed myself. Can I move into your, uh, to your guest room for a few months to get myself back on my feet? And, and what had kind of led to that was the building that I was in for 10 years got sold, or maybe it was 12 years, at least a decade got sold. And I couldn't find a place to relocate. And I thought I would be fine. I moved to New York City and had some clients in there. But I wasn't making what I used to. I was partying way too hard. And that was how I ended up back at mom's house, completely broke and just, you know, digging for change in the couch and eating potatoes and bagels for a few months and uh, eventually turned it around though. How did you turn it around? What was it, you know, can you think of some key kind of moments or? You know, it was just a good awakening, you know, like any, any time you hit that, uh, I mean, you can think of any cliche in the book, it's always darkest before this is uh, the light and all that, but it was just, I had to hit that rock bottom to have that awakening. 
and say, okay, this is never going to happen again. I can't do this. What do I have to do? What are the bad habits that I have to eliminate? I have to work super hard. I'm not going out. I'm not going to see a girl for three months. I'm not going to do anything. I am just working as hard as I can to get back on my feet. And during that time, I was really dedicated to growing my online business. My online business was something that I started in, uh, I'd say putting effort into it around 2003. I was online since 2001, but around 2003 and then 2006, I really focused on, on building that up and uh, you know, learning everything I could about how to optimize that and how to grow that. And then luckily enough, or with a lot of hard work, I, I you know, I, I really made that uh, a huge success once I, I barely did anything. Like I said, I didn't go out to eat. I didn't do anything. And it was just three months. And I, and I, I set a time commitment, right? I said, I'm going to be at my mom's house for three months. And that's it. So you have to have those goals and those deadlines and people to be accountable to. Very, very cool. And so when you say your online business, obviously you're, you're quite a prolific kind of um, blogger. Um, but are you also referring to the, the Renegade Strength Club that you run as well? Yeah, so I, back then my blog was getting uh, probably half a million readers a month. It really blew up, and so I was selling uh, various eBooks. I, I was one of the first people in the fitness industry to self-publish their own eBooks, sell their own training programs back as early as 2003, when when maybe five other people were doing it that I knew of. And now, of course, everybody does it. But I and then, and then eventually I rolled it into because recurring income is. What, what everybody wants that you know that's when you, that's a real lifestyle business so eventually in 2009 started the renegade strength club and then we added some higher level coaching programs as we went uh four years ago we had the podcast but back then it was really just blogging I, I think it was i'd say a three-year period where i committed and that's what i always tell people commit to doing one thing religiously do it do it with consistency do it excellently i wrote 500 words a day every day of the year for either either two or three years straight i always lose track of that but every single day i'd pump out content 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 and uh and it worked and i didn't try to do 80 things at once right i was just writing a blog i wasn't trying to do a blog a podcast videos all this stuff it was just that and then give somebody something that's going to solve a problem a solution to their problem sell them that and that was what i did and where you know because at that time i think a lot of the things that you were doing as a as a coach and as a trainer were probably quite new um yeah quite innovative so where were those where were you getting those ideas to kind of do those things there was a book in uh so back then there was no internet in, in the 90s early 90s you couldn't order stuff it, eventually in the back of iron man magazine there was a one-page ad and you could order old books so basically all you could get in those days was was just bodybuilding information muscle and fitness or flex and it wasn't always the best stuff. You know, it was, certainly wasn't great for training athletes, wasn't great for training average people who aren't on a ton of steroids and don't have those kind of genetics. So I was able to order all these old books like Super Squats and The Keys to Progress and stuff early as 1906 from uh, George Hackenschmidt and Arthur Saxon. Uh, so that started to kind of revolutionize my training a bit. And then in 96, there was a book that came out called Dinosaur Training. And he was the guy who talked all about training with kegs and barrels and sandbags and sledgehammers and anvils and rocks and all these odd objects. So that was really the, uh, the, 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 the guy in the book that got me going on that at first. Yeah. Very cool. So, so now what is your, what's your split now between actually trained, like physically being there and training someone versus running your online business? You know, you know, you do a podcast as well. 
What does an average day kind of look like for you now? I don't really train people too often anymore. I have some friends in town that are actors, they are pro athletes. I, I know a lot of really cool people who are doing cool stuff. So I will train with them as training partners. So I'm always still coaching. I'm working with them. Uh, occasionally I'll take on a new client here and there. You know, if I have a, a buddy or somebody I know that's getting ready for a role or a show or an event, sometimes for, for short periods, but I don't have the time and it, it doesn't really fit my lifestyle now at 43 after doing this for so long to be in the gym on the floor for that many hours a day. So many other things going on, so many opportunities to travel and to reach more people. So as, as much as I love it and I, and I keep uh, a little bit of a hand in it, uh, it, it, it kind of, it shuts me down from the other opportunities that I have that I really want to pursue and, and reach more people. So, yeah. And have a bigger impact, I suppose. Obviously. Yeah. Yeah. Very cool. So you, um, you touched on like a lack of, a lack of confidence and kind of anxiety and insecurity. And you're, you're, you're quite open about that from things I've, I've read from you in the past. How did you kind of tackle that? Cause I think that holds, especially young people and especially in, you know, in, in a job where you're making products and you're putting yourself into, you know, in your case, an ebook, how did you tackle that, that kind of, um, you know, lack of confidence? What, what were the steps that you took? I kind of had this awakening and I don't remember the specific day or incident or whatever it was. It might've just been a series of things where I just became more aware of personal development. And, and, and I realized, man, I, I only read books about training. And then I got into a phase where I only re read books about business. And somehow I just had this awakening where I, I said, you know what, I'm just a bigger, stronger, uh, wealthier version of the insecure kid that I was. And I need to work on that stuff. I need to address that. And so I, I made the decision that I wanted to get away from certain people. You know, I've read a lot of things by uh, How to Win Friends and Influence People, Dale Carnegie, things like that. And I knew that you were the average of the people you spent the five people you spend the most time with. And I, so when I looked around at the people I'm spending time with, most of them were negative. Most of them were gossiping. Most of them were complaining, uh, talking shit about people, whatever it might have been. And nobody had these big ideas. And if you had a big idea, they would say, dude, you got to play it safer. Like, don't do that. That's too risky. You know, so, so I said, how am I ever going to get where I want to be with these people? So I tried to slowly distance myself from them and try to unlearn some bad habits and then just be honest with myself and say, what do I really fear? Well, I fear everybody judging me. I, I, I don't communicate authoritatively and effectively. I'm I go into a room with a lot of people, I kind of go into a shell. I'm great in my own gym in that thousand square feet with 10 to 20 athletes, controlling the music, controlling the environment. I'm great. I can control that and I could make it super fun and I could lead the athletes and that's why I was able to grow a successful business, but get me outside of that and I'm, a, I'm nothing. I'm a shell of that person. So I realized something has to change. I got to work on myself and I got to push myself. And I would start to identify moments when I'm uncomfortable. Okay, if I'm out at a table with six people, why am I not saying anything? What, what is causing me to do that? So, and then eventually I realized too, I'd heard uh, Henry Rollins talk about the need to move out of your hometown and go somewhere and, and have the chance to really start fresh and reinvent yourself. And so I said, you know what? I got to move to California. I got to get, I got to move to the other side of the country, distance myself from all this. And some people are strong enough to do it where they are. I wasn't, I recognize that. I knew I needed a fresh start, get away from that stuff, reinvent myself. And, and then I knew, I knew that environment triggers behavior. So no matter how many books I read and workshops I went to, if I would go back to, let's say, my mom's house 
or be with certain people or drive down certain roads. It was just like, man, I'm still caught in that. So I had to get away. And I, I think there's power to that. Some people confuse it and think, well, you're running away from your problems, but that's not really the case. If, if you're going away and you're purposeful in what you're trying to do in your actions, you're not running away from your problems. You're just giving yourself a fresh, you know, a chance at a fresh start. Yeah, very, very true. Um, yeah, I can definitely kind of uh, empathize with that. So, okay. So to someone listening who um, they love training uh, and, you know, they love training, but they're thinking, you know, I don't, I don't want to be just be a personal trainer who's in on the floor 12, 15 hours a day, one-on-one -on -one training clients, and I'm just exhausted and I'm working seven days a week. But I do love training, but I've got bigger ambitions. If you could just leave, if you could give them one piece of advice, one sentence to take away from, from this conversation, what, what would it be? Well, there's no way I can give them one sentence because it's, it's a loaded question. So it's, why, why do they want to get away? Are they, are they not working smart? Are they working too hard? You know, it, it really depends. If your goal is to stay on the floor and continue to train people, then you have to get smarter. You have to start doing semi-private training, small group training. You have to double your rates, and people are always scared to raise their rates. If you double your rates tomorrow, you will work less. You might, let's say you don't make any more money. I guarantee you if you double your rates tomorrow, you probably make the same amount of money. Eventually, you're going to make way more money, and you're going to work less. So you have to have the confidence to increase your rates and really charge what you're worth. And then I'd also say to people, so there's a thing in the fitness business industry where coaches who work with fitness professionals, they say, oh, you got to get off the floor and you can't work in your business. You have to work on your business, which is asinine. It's completely awful advice because if you got into this to be a coach, then be a coach. You didn't get into this to go in the back office and study marketing and SEO, hire somebody for that. So that's the thing. Like you got to figure out why, what you want to do, hire and outsource more people. That's a problem. As, as small business owners, we always try to do everything ourselves. So if you're a trainer, but you're also answering the phones, doing all your Facebook ads, cleaning the gym, stop doing all that. That would help. You know, there's so many things. So it's hard to give one sentence. Yeah. I mean, it was a tough question. I'll, 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 <laughs> yeah. I'll hand up to that one. Um, okay. Is there, is there someone who's massively helped you in your career that, you know, maybe they don't know. And it's just, you know, you've just never had that chance actually to say, just to thank them. No, because I would never let that happen. I, I thank everybody who's helped me. That, that's a key, uh, just way, way I live. So I always thank everybody and give credit where credit's due. So Dave Tate was hugely influential. Alan Cosgrove, my friend Mark Crook, and uh, Bedros Koulian, Craig Valentine, all those guys have been hugely influential and helpful to me. Very cool. And is that what, what's the sort of daily, um, you know, the sort of the book, uh, eat that frog, like what's, what's the sort of daily challenge that you, is, is the hardest, but always sort of returns the biggest kind of return on investment for you in your job. You know, a, a few years back when I, when I was earlier in this, in this journey of improving myself and personal development and self-actualization, it was really just trying to be the person that I, that I feel I am now. And of course I, I still work every day. I want to get better every day. But just initiating a conversation, giving somebody a compliment, really connecting with somebody, being present, um, and just anything I could do to improve my communication skills, my relationship building skills, my, my ability to connect, communicate. And every day I work on that. I, I don't, I don't want to miss an opportunity to do that. And I'm always hyper aware 
of what I can do better. So whenever I'm going to a meeting, I'm going to visualize on the way there. Here's how I want to project myself. Here's how I want to walk in. Here's how I want to make that person feel. Here are the bad habits that I want to avoid. If I get insecure about something, if somebody asks me a question I'm insecure about, I want to make sure I don't look down like this. I want to, I want to know what my body language is projecting. I want to be aware of, am I subliminally telling someone that they're wrong without saying those words? Make sure I pause before I communicate. This stuff is like, I'm OCD about this now because I realize what a huge impact it has and, and, and how many opportunities people blow and miss all the time because they're not aware of it. So I'm always trying to get better at that stuff. And then I would say, you know, a challenge, because that's not really a challenge for me anymore, it's just something that I work on and now it comes naturally to me, but the challenge is if I identify something that makes me uncomfortable, then I go, okay, I got to get better. I got to do that. Like if right now, if we go on stage at the Staples Center or Madison Square Garden, I have no problem. I'm not nervous. I can do it. I love it. But for whatever reason, I feel more awkward and nervous and hesitant to hold up my phone and film a selfie video on the Venice boardwalk or in the middle of New York City with lots of people around. And I know that and I feel that resistance, which just forces me to say, okay, why? That's stupid. What's it gonna hurt? And just do it, do it, do it. So I think it's important to be aware, notice where you're uh, having this resistance or this fear and then ask why. What's, why? What are you scared of? Like, what am I scared of? Is someone gonna hit me with a bat because I'm doing that? It's just my ego or my pride or my feelings. Nothing's gonna happen, you know? So you just have, we're all scared of weird stuff and it doesn't make sense, but be aware of it and walk into that fear, face that fear. Yeah. I was actually just joking with someone today about um, just walking back from like lunch and we walked past some guy, I think meditating on a bench and I kind of just, yeah. said, you know, I always really struggle with that. Cause I always just think like, if I was doing that, someone could just walk up and just punch me in the face. Right, 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 right. Yeah. <laughs> like nothing yeah. about it. Um, yeah, totally. You're talking about this sort of, um, those kind of fears. Did that lead you to pursue the kind of improv comedy? What, what, what made you make that sort of, you know, step where you, you know, because I feel like I look, I look at you and I'm sort of like, you know, this guy's doing enough already. He probably doesn't need to add any more kind of skills to his life. And then I saw you were doing that. So obviously something made you, you know, get into that. So. Yeah, I kind of just, you know, I, I, I was trying to speak more and get into uh, Toastmasters and, and things like that. And. My friend who's a professional wrestler, who's, uh, he was John Morrison in WWE, he was doing a show at Second City one night, and he texted me, he said, hey, bro, I got an improv show tonight, you want to come check it out, I know you're doing more stuff, I had been doing a stand-up class, and again, that was just me think, you know, thinking, how can I get out of my comfort zone, and everybody's number one fear is public speaking, so I was like, all right, I got to take this on, take this on head on and get into it, and then when I went to the improv show, I was blown away. And because I had studied people skills and human nature and psychology and all that so much, I instantly saw the value in how this was going to translate to every aspect of my life from, from listening skills to thinking on your feet to just public speaking and building relationships. And so I was hooked. Luckily, we went out to a bar afterwards and we were hanging out. And one of the teachers at Second City was with us. And he said, dude, the, the next semester starts tomorrow. Here, here's the link. Why don't you sign up right now? And I just signed up in the bar and I was, I was there at Second City the next day. And within 15 minutes of the class, I thought, man, this should be required in high schools and colleges. This is essential. This is incredible. I just knew it was the thing for me. And, and it, was, it was always uncomfortable and it made me nervous. 
And I just loved it though. I got so much out of it. So, and I did it consistently for two years and the last two years I've been on and off because my schedule is crazier and they changed some of the class. So I can't make it as much, but it's definitely, I would urge anybody to do it. Yeah. I, I, it's it's got to be one of the scariest, you know, obviously you could be a firefighter or, or whatever, but yeah. that's, that is terrifying. The thought that you could be on a stage, hundreds of people looking at you and not only uh, do you have to keep them entertained, keep them listening, but you have to make them laugh as well is, is pretty terrifying. So I can see yeah. getting comfortable with that would obviously deliver pretty huge value and, and, and huge skill base as well. So, yeah. Yeah, I think that the, the, the idea that that's being, that should be taught in school is, um, is, is pretty good. Yeah. Um, so you mentioned uh, How to Win Friends and Influence People, which is a great book. Are there any other books that you find yourself really pushing on to people? You know, anyone who speaks to you for advice, you, you know, you sort of like, yeah. book, you need to read this. Uh, Never Read Alone, The Go-Giver. Uh, there's a book called Fascinate. There's a book called Captivate. What else? Those are all, I mean, for, for the kind of stuff we're talking about, th those are all really good books. Okay. Yeah. What was the, um, just kind of wrap it up now. So what was the, the last thing that you kind of saw or heard or experienced that made you think, man, that is clever, that's smart? Mm. What a tough question. Uh, yeah. huh. You know, I, I mean, this kind of sounds like an... Uh, almost like a douchey asshole answer, I guess, but I, I, I'm so fortunate in my life now that I'm surrounded by people who are doing amazing things all the time that I'm just in awe and inspired by everyone that I'm around. So it's almost hard to, to single out something. Uh, I just see it every day. I mean, this, this, this one's it's the first thing that comes to my head, but my friend Becky Lynch, who's uh, wrestling for the women's title at SummerSlam, uh, she was over last night and I was looking at her, a little Instagram story she put together and she's so creative. And uh, I just thought that was amazing. I said to her, dude, that was absolutely amazing. And my friend, we were back in Jersey in New York filming a bunch of stuff. And my, my good friend, Jay Jablonski, he's an actor. He came with me to kind of uh, help on the shoot and he was directing stuff. And he just had all these amazing ideas and creativity. So I think it's just so important to surround your people, yourself with people who are smarter than you, doing things that are cooler or better, or, you know, that you aspire to do. And they're always lifting you up. And then if you say, hey, man, I have this idea, they don't not only say, that's a great idea, they might say, and here's, hey, what, what about if you do like this? Or maybe, maybe you're thinking too small. I think you could 10x that, as opposed to most people will say, hey, I have this huge idea. And the people who are surrounding themselves are like, oh, I don't know, dude, sounds a little risky. Like, get away from those people, you know? Yeah. Okay. Last one then. This one is tough, but usually gets pretty good answers. What's your one paragraph idea for saving the world? You know, I think so many people get caught up in that these days and you can look around and, and, and I've gone through this. I was like, man, I'm never going to do anything that's going to compare to what, what, what Martin Luther King did or, or what Ali did or Bruce Lee or JFK or Malcolm X and or Mother Teresa. And then you can kind of almost get bummed out. But the reality is we can all change the world if you just leave the house in the morning with a focus on other people instead of focusing on yourself so much. So we're all like, man, how can I get in better shape? And how can I make more money? And how can I get this girl or this guy? And how can I do this? But if you wake up in the morning and you're more 
externally focused and you, you just simply say hello to people more, you smile more, you compliment people more, you ask how they're doing, you connect because all humans want connection. We're tribal people. We want that feeling of connection and community. And if you can do that and brighten up somebody's day on a small level, you know, that's contagious and other people will start to do that. And you can affect the way people around you act and think. So if people around you are negative and they gossip a lot, you can't preach to them and say that's not the way to live, but by the way you live and the way you present yourself and the way you don't participate in those conversations, eventually that affects them. And then they go on and kind of pass it on and, and that happens. And so I think if you just live that way and don't get bummed out that you're not going to be the next, you know, big savior or somebody like that is going to go down. And you might, maybe we, we all should aspire to that, but don't be bummed out just by helping one person you help one person you change one person you make one person smile it goes on and snowballs and and and, and it's, in essence you have changed the world so and i love the quote from maya angelou it's my favorite one of my top five favorite quotes is people will forget what you said people forget what you did but people will never forget the way you made them feel and so if you do that and you keep that in mind with everyone you meet the world's going to change great answer um you, you kind of, you meted the crap out of my question, but it, um, <laughs> it led to a very, very good answer. So thank you very much. Um, Ledger, I'm not going to keep you any longer. That, that should be the name of this episode. You meted the crap out of that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. well, I, I need to talk to you about what we call it. So I, I guess I'll go with that then. Uh, cool. Look, Jay, thanks so much for your time. There's some really great stuff in there for people listening. So I really appreciate it. Thank thanks, you. Elliot. I appreciate you having me on, man. <laughs>